Hey Conjurers, I'm Sham. And I'm Steph. One thing we talk about a lot on this podcast is the vulnerability of being taken advantage of. As if it isn't bad enough harming or murdering someone who didn't see it coming, imagine if you dedicated your life to manipulating them. Today, I want to talk to you about two men that teamed up with a sick goal they were determined to reach. That would cost six girls the rest of their lives and possibly more. Sigmund Bitteker was born on September 27, 1940 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. His parents' names are unknown, but he wasn't a planned baby and was immediately placed in an orphanage and adopted. He moved around a lot because his adoptive father, George, worked in the aviation industry. Lawrence was a little bit of a delinquent growing up. His criminal career started as young as 12 years old when he got arrested for shoplifting. He continued stealing into his teenage years telling the juvenile courts that the reason he stole was due to the lack of love he was obtaining from his parents. He dropped out of high school in 1957, claiming it was tedious and the experience he just didn't care for. Even though he felt it was tedious, he had an IQ of 138 and chose not to take advantage of that. Within a year of dropping out, he was arrested for a hit-and-run, evading arrest, and car theft. His adoptive parents decided to move from the state of California where they were living with Lawrence and abandon him completely. He never saw his adoptive parents again after that last arrest. In August of 1959, Lawrence was sentenced to 18 months at the Oklahoma State Reformatory for transporting a stolen vehicle across state lines. He served the last of his sentencing in Springfield, Missouri at a medical center for federal prisoners. When Lawrence was released from prison the following year, he quickly went back to committing crimes and months later was arrested once again for robbery in Los Angeles and was sentenced to 15 years in prison. While in prison, he was required to see a psychiatrist who described Lawrence as having considerable concealed hostility and diagnosed him with being highly manipulative. In 1963, after only two years of imprisonment, he was released on parole but was back in prison the following year for violating that parole. He was once again required to see a psychiatrist, but this time he was classified as a borderline psychopath who was highly manipulative and unable to acknowledge the consequences of his actions. Why are people diagnosed with such dangerous personality disorders, especially when they have a criminal record, released back into society with no oversight? Once his prison sentence was over, he needed a facility that could help manage his mental illness. Instead, they just send him back out into the world and say, good luck. Right. Prisons are not mental health facilities. He needed more before being able to be around the rest of society, period. I'm sure the cycle only continued. Well, Lawrence blamed his need to commit crimes on his upbringing and told the psychiatrist doing bad things gives him a sense of importance. A year later, in 1966, he was prescribed medication to help with his condition and was once again released. Like clockwork, one year later from his release in 1967, he was arrested for theft and leaving the scene of an accident. He was sentenced to five years, but only served three of those years before he was released in April of 1970. He was arrested in March of 1971 and served three years. His last early arrest would be in 1974, where he was charged with assault and attempted murder after stabbing a supermarket employee. Apparently, the employee saw Lawrence steal some steaks and followed him out into the parking lot where he asked him to pay. 
Instead of responding to the employee, Lawrence stabbed him in the chest. He was then sent to the California Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo. Jeez, that's an overreaction if I've ever seen one. That grocery store employee does not get paid enough for that shit. I was always told to never approach someone who's openly committing a crime such as theft. That stake was not worth risking his life. I totally agree. You said at the beginning there are two men in this story? Yeah. Roy Lewis Norris was born on February 5th in 1948 in Greeley, Colorado. He was also not planned by his parents, but they decided to make it work and get married to avoid judgment by their peers. His mother was a housewife who struggled with substance abuse, and his father worked in a scrapyard. Due to the lack of care his parents could provide, he lived most of his life in and out of foster care throughout the state of Colorado. According to Roy, he spent his childhood being falsely accused of things by his biological parents. This continued on with his foster families, with an addition to being denied a sufficient amount of food and clothing. One foster home he was hosted in was with a Hispanic family where he claimed to be sexually abused. He claimed this caused him to develop a prejudice against that race that continued on into his adult years. When Roy was 16 years old, he sexually harassed his 20-year-old relative who asked him to leave her alone and proceeded to tell his biological father. His father responded by threatening him with violence, at which Roy stole his father's car. His plan was to drive to the Rocky Mountains and commit suicide by injecting air into his artery in his arm. His attempt to commit suicide was a fail. His parents called the police and told them he was a runaway, and upon finding him, he was returned home. His parents had had enough, and they shared with Roy and his younger sister that they were never wanted, and as soon as they both reached 18, they planned on divorcing each other. At 17 years old, Roy dropped out of high school and joined the United States Navy stationed in San Diego, California. He was deployed to Vietnam for a few months, but never actually saw any active combat. He was honorably discharged after that one tour, and it turns out Roy was actually discharged from the Navy due to psychological problems after he was diagnosed with severe schizoid personality. I'm sorry, I have to just point out that the neglect and trauma both of these guys experienced in their childhood that helped form who they are is exactly what forced birth leads to. You know what would have saved them from a life of misery? Abortion. And as we will learn soon, it would have saved many other lives too. So Roy has a personality disorder too. Did he rack up a record like Lawrence did? Well, Roy's criminal record wasn't burglary, theft, or assault like Lawrence's. He was arrested consistently for sexual offenses. In November of 1969, he was charged with both rape and assault with attempt to commit rape when he attempted to force his way into a woman's car that he targeted, simply because she was alone. One year later, in 1970, he tried manipulating his way into a woman's home. When she wasn't buying it, he tried to break in, but before he had the chance to assault her, the woman called 911 and they got there just in time. In 1970, he began stalking a student at San Diego University. One day without any warning, he struck her on the back of the head with a rock, and when she fell to her knees, he beat her head against the sidewalk while kneeling on her lower back. He was sentenced to five years at a state hospital where he was classified as a mentally disordered sex offender. Five years later, Roy was released and put on probation. He was deemed no longer a danger to society or himself by professionals. Three months after his release, he assaulted another woman who was walking home from a restaurant in Redondo Beach. 
Roy had offered her a ride on his motorcycle, and when she respectfully declined, he parked, then grabbed her by her scarf, twisted it around her neck, and dragged her into the bushes before sexually assaulting her. After he released her, she did report the sexual assault to the local police, but they were unable to identify her attacker as Roy. One month later, though, she noticed his motorcycle and took down the license plate. One long year later, he was arrested for sexual assault and was sent to the same prison as Lawrence, the California men's colony in St. Louis Obispo. What the hell? They decided he was no longer a danger to society, released him, and he immediately started attacking women again. It sounds like they really did their due diligence. Clearly, they are not good at reading people or just no longer wanted to be bothered by them. The two of them met at that prison, didn't they? Oh, yeah. In 1977, both men, now in the same prison, had known of each other, but became close when Roy taught Lawrence how to make jewelry. In prison, Roy was seen as an individual who was associated with motorcycle gangs and hardened criminals who dealt in contraband. On several occasions, Lawrence saved Roy from being attacked by fellow inmates. By 1978, the pair bonded over shared interests such as sexual violence, misogyny, and frightening young women. Though Lawrence didn't have a history of sexually assaulting anyone, he did tell Roy that if he ever had the chance to do it, he would kill them after so there wouldn't be any witnesses. They began to fantasize and plan out how they would assault and murder young women once they were both released. Their plan consisted of murdering one girl of each teenage year, 13 to 19 years old. They made a pact to find each other once they were released, and they did. Now determined to get their first abduction right, Roy and Lawrence picked up well over 20 female hitchhikers between February and June of 1979. The women and teens they abducted were practice runs. They didn't assault them in any manner. They just wanted to figure out the perfect way to lure and get them to trust them. It also gave them a way to scout out secluded locations. One location stood out to them in April that year. It was an isolated fire road in the San Gabriel Mountains. Together, they decided to break open the lock gate on the site with a crowbar and replace the lock with one of their own. This gives me the creeps. They were practicing their abduction techniques and securing the perfect location. They weren't crazed or impulsive. This was all so carefully planned. Can you imagine finding out one day that you were a part of these men's practice runs? Scary. They weren't spending all this time planning for nothing, though. Let's talk about their first victim. On the morning of June 24th of 1979, Lawrence and Roy had just finished installing a bed in the rear of their van, which beneath they placed tools, clothes, and a cooler they filled with beer and soft drinks. They then drove off to a nearby beach area to flirt with girls, drink, and smoke some weed. Around 7.46 p.m., they spotted a girl walking down the side of the road, to which Lawrence said, there's a cute little blonde. They offered her a ride home and some marijuana. But when she rejected their offers, they decided to drive further ahead to park on the side of the road and wait for her. The girl they were now stalking was 16-year-old Lucinda Lynn Schaefer, who went by Cindy. She was walking to her grandmother's home from a Christian youth meeting she had just attended at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church. Once they pulled over, Roy opened the passenger sliding door of the car and stood out of view. When Cindy made her way past the vehicle, Roy exchanged a few little words with her before dragging her into the van and locking her in. Lawrence turned the radio on and put it on full blast, making sure no one passing by would hear Cindy fighting for her life as Roy bound her arms and legs and gagged her with duct tape. 
They drove her to the isolated fire road they had discovered back in April. Either in a state of shock or pure survival mode, Cindy found a way to regain her composure and calm down. According to the men, they told investigators later on, and I quote, she shed no tears, offered no resistance, and expressed no great concern for her safety. I guess she knew it was coming, end quote. Oh my God. She was 16 years old, just a child. She found a way to stay calm in what was most likely the worst moment of her life because her fight, flight, or freeze instincts were kicking in. She was trying to survive by trying not to do anything that might anger them. She didn't resist because she wanted to come off as compliant so they would eventually release her. Exactly. She did a very strong and brave thing. It didn't save her, though, did it? As soon as they got to the fire road, Roy asked Lawrence to go on a walk for an hour. Lawrence did leave, and then Roy proceeded to sexually assault Cindy. When he returned, Roy left for a bit, and Lawrence did the same to Cindy. Originally, the men discussed not killing Cindy, but she felt in her gut that this might be the end and asked the men if she could at least pray before they did it. She didn't get a chance to do that before Roy had his hands around her neck, attempting to strangle her. Before he could finish, he ran to the front of the van to throw up, to which Lawrence immediately took over and strangled Cindy until she collapsed. He then took a wire coat hanger to her neck with a pair of pliers until she was no longer breathing. After there was no sign of life left in Cindy, the men wrapped her up in a plastic shower curtain and threw her over a steep canyon. They chose this method because they figured the animals would get rid of any evidence. They couldn't even give her a minute to pray. That poor little girl was probably so scared. I mean, it doesn't surprise me that they didn't. They wanted her to have no form of comfort before taking her life. That wasn't their only victim, was it? Nope. Two weeks later, on July 8th of 1979, 18-year-old Andrea Joy Hall was encountered by Roy and Lawrence while hitchhiking along the Pacific Coast Highway. They had asked her if she would like a ride, but at that same time, another car had just pulled over to offer her the same. She decided to catch a ride with the other car, but the men weren't giving up that easily. They decided to follow the car to the drop-off location, which turned out to be Redondo Beach. Lawrence decided to approach Andrea while Roy hid in the back of the van behind a bedspread, hoping that Andrea would feel more at ease knowing that she wasn't outnumbered and that Lawrence was alone. He offered her a drink at the rear of the van, and when she accepted and reached out for it, Roy grabbed her. She began the fight, which prompted the men to twist her arms behind her back, bound and gag her. She was taken to the fire route just like Cindy and sexually assaulted, once by Roy and twice by Lawrence. While Lawrence was in the act, Roy thought he saw a vehicle's headlights coming towards them. Paranoid, Lawrence put his hand over Andrea's mouth and dragged her into the bushes while Roy went to find the vehicle he thought he saw. After an unsuccessful search, the men threw Andrea into the van and drove her into the mountains. Lawrence then forced Andrea to walk alongside the road naked, perform oral sex on him, and posed her while taking several Polaroid photos. After that, they drove to another location, where Lawrence made Andrea walk up a nearby hill while Roy went to the store to purchase alcohol. When he returned, Andrea was nowhere to be found. All that was visible was two Polaroids Lawrence had took that appeared to be a horrified Andrea in his hand. Lawrence told Roy that he decided to play a game with Andrea. He told her to give him as many reasons as she could come up with for him not to kill her. He then, and I'm so sorry, Contras, but this is another ear killing. Okay, here we go. 
He thrusted an ice pick through her ear and into her brain before turning her over and doing the same to the other ear, stomping on it until the handle broke. He disposed of her by throwing her body off of a nearby cliff. Oh my god, champ. (laughs) They really escalated their cruelty with Andrea, and they hunted her down when she chose the other car. She doesn't feel random. The universe led her to the other car, only for them to find a way to get her into their car no matter what. She trusted her gut, and that angered them. Two young, innocent lives taken for the sick enjoyment of two very disturbed men. Their murder spree didn't end there. Steph will continue this case with even more victims after this short break. Two months after Andrea, on September 3rd, 15-year-old Jackie Doris Gillian and 13-year-old Jacqueline Leah Lamp were sitting on a bus stop bench near Hermosa Beach when Lawrence and Roy chose them as their next victims. They offered them a ride and some marijuana, and unfortunately, the girls accepted. While inside the van, the girls quickly realized Lawrence got off the Pacific Coast Highway and was headed towards the San Gabriel Mountains. They immediately grew concerned and asked the men to turn around. Roy attempted to calm the girls down with excuses, but it didn't work. Jacqueline started to open the sliding door of the van, but was stopped when Roy grabbed a bag filled with lead weights and hit her in the back of the head, knocking her unconscious. He then overpowered Jackie and began gagging and bounding her hands and feet. While he was doing that, Jacqueline regained consciousness and tried to run out of the van again, but was dragged back into it by Roy. Lawrence could see Roy was struggling to try to handle not one, but two girls, so he stopped the van, punched Jackie in the face, and helped Roy finish tying them up. For two days, Jackie and Jacqueline were held hostage in the San Gabriel Mountains, and for two days they were repeatedly sexually and physically assaulted. Just like the other girls, they had to endure having Polaroid photos taken of them in vulnerable positions. At one point, Lawrence took Jacqueline out to a nearby hill and forced her to pose nude before returning her to the van. He even asked Roy to take several Polaroids of himself and Jackie, both nude and closed. One new method of torture added to this abduction was that Lawrence filmed himself sexually assaulting Jackie, making her pretend to be his cousin and express how much pain she was in. Roy escalated his torture by inflicting pain on Jackie by stabbing her in the breast with an ice pick and using pliers on her. The men spent those two days taking turns sleeping side by side with the girls as the other kept a lookout. In the end, they were both murdered. Jackie with an ice pick through the ear and strangulation, and Jacqueline with a sledgehammer to the head and strangulation. Both of the girls' bodies were thrown over an embankment. Ugh, another ear murder. And he made her pretend to be his cousin. That's very weird. Clearly, he had some dark fantasies. (laughs) Obviously. It honestly just keeps getting worse for every girl they capture at this point. It does. And one month later, on October 31st, they chose their final victim, 16-year-old Shirley Lynette Ledford. She had just left a Halloween party she was attending in a suburb of Los Angeles and decided to hitchhike home. She was standing outside of a gas station when Lawrence and Roy spotted her and offered her a ride. She actually recognized Lawrence because he would often come in and eat at the restaurant where she was a waitress part-time. She was offered marijuana when she got into the vehicle but declined, and before she knew it, Lawrence had driven her to a secluded area and she had a knife to her throat. 
She was then gagged and bound with construction tape. Lawrence swapped places with Roy, and he spent the next hour slapping, mocking, and punching Shirley. He took it further by grabbing a hammer and striking her on the breast. He took out the pliers and used them on her body in between and during sexual assaulting her. This was all caught on camera by the men themselves. They had been recording her from the moment she entered the van. Roy then switched places with Lawrence again, and he can be heard saying on the recording, and I quote, Go ahead and scream, or I'll make you scream. To which Shirley replied, I'll scream if you stop hitting me. It was clear they were getting off on hearing this poor girl scream and fight for her life. He then took the sledgehammer and struck Shirley in her elbow over 26 times as she pleaded for him to stop. Two hours into her captivity, she was strangled with the wire coat hanger by Roy. The men decided to dispose of her body on a random person's lawn to gain some attention from the press. They drove to Sunland, California and disposed of her body on a pile of ivy on a front lawn. Her body was found the next morning by a jogger. During her autopsy, the medical examiner discovered that she had been sexually assaulted, had extensive blunt force trauma to the face, head, breast, forearm, and left elbow. Her left hand had also been punctured and the fingers on her right hand slashed. Her private area had been torn from the insertion of pliers during her assault and her cause of death was ultimately strangulation. But the police still had no idea who had done this to her. Lawrence took advantage of Shirley knowing him from the restaurant. She probably figured, okay, he's a weird guy, but it's nice of him to offer me a ride. They seemed way more interested in beating her up, though, than sexually assaulting her. They started getting their pleasure from purely causing pain. Yeah. How did this end up being the final woman, though? I feel like these men are unstoppable. Well, their killing streak would come to an end in November 1979, when Roy met up with an old friend he knew from prison, Joseph Jackson. Roy confided in Joseph, sharing with him the activities he and Lawrence had been up to over the last five months. He even shared what he did to Shirley in graphic detail. Aside from sharing what he had done to the five victims we discussed in this case so far, he bragged about three additional victims where he and Lawrence had abducted and raped women, but they either escaped or were released afterwards. Joseph would later consult with his attorney about what Roy told him. That attorney contacted the LAPD, who then contacted the Hermosa Beach Police. Detective Paul Bynum from the Hermosa Beach PD was assigned to the case and took investigating Roy's claims of murder, abduction, and rape very seriously. He knew that several young women had been reported missing in the area over the last five months, so the timeline matched up with what Roy had confessed. Back on September 30th, a woman named Robin Robeck filed a report stating that she had been sprayed in the face with mace and dragged into the back of a van where she was sexually assaulted by two Caucasian men in their 30s before being released. This was one of the many stories Roy had told where the victim had gotten away. As a way to figure out if these were indeed the same men she had reported, they sent an investigator to her home in Oregon and showed her the mugshots of Lawrence and Roy. She was confident they were the men who had sexually assaulted her. Who knows how many more women would have died if they weren't dumb enough to deliver all that evidence to police on a silver platter with Shirley's body being disposed. Right? Luckily for everyone else, they weren't satisfied with getting away with their crimes in secret. They needed to brag about it. Robin's positive identification should be enough to take their asses down, though. 
She wasn't able to give a positive identification of the men during a police lineup. However, this information was enough to put the men under surveillance. On November 20th, 1979, Broy was arrested for violating his parole for dealing marijuana. That same day, they arrested Lawrence at the Burbank Motel he was staying at for the sexual assault of Robin. Both men were held without bail on parole violations. Lawrence's apartment was searched, and this was when investigators found all of those Polaroid photos. Of special interest were the photos of two girls reported missing earlier that year, Jackie and Andrea. Inside the van, they found a plastic bag filled with lead weights, a book detailing how to navigate police frequencies, two necklaces that would later be confirmed as belonging to two of the victims, a sledgehammer, a jar of Vaseline, and seven bottles of an acidic material. The investigators would later find out Lawrence planned to experiment with the acid on their next victim. Another piece of damning evidence was the tape recording of young women screaming and pleading for their lives while being sexually assaulted and beaten. One of the girls' voices on the recording was later identified as Shirley by her own mother. At Roy's apartment, they found Shirley's bracelet he kept as a souvenir. These men proved to really stalk their prey because over 500 Polaroids of teenage girls and young women were discovered between the both apartments. These were taken secretly without consent at such places as Hermosa Beach and Burbank High School. During the investigation, 60 of the young women were identified and located, and none of them had been harmed. They had over 500 Polaroids. It's eerie just thinking about all the girls they stalked. They were true predators. Any one of those girls could have been a target and never had any idea they were being watched. It's so scary. So I want to discuss the takedown because I'm ready to hear them pay for the consequences of their actions. (laughs) On November 30th, 1979, Roy appeared to show signs of stress during his preliminary hearing for the sexual assault of Robin. After waiving his Miranda rights, Detective Bynum and District Attorney Stephen Kay began questioning him about the assault. They then moved on to the evidence against him for the missing women and the statements given to the police by Joseph. He initially denied any involvement, but when police showed him the evidence they collected from his and Lawrence's residences, he confessed, but tried to place all the blame on Lawrence. He went on to confess that he and Lawrence drove up and down the Pacific Coast Highway looking for attractive women to offer rides, marijuana, and a chance to pose with the pair for photos. He told them most of the women rejected them, but four girls did accept a ride and were murdered, and the fifth victim was taken by force. Roy admitted to bludgeoning their young victim Jacqueline with a sledgehammer but said Lawrence strangled her. He claimed Lawrence also struck Shirley in the elbow with the sledgehammer before strangling her. They enjoyed torturing victims for entertainment and did intend on using those bottles of acid they found at Lawrence's motel on whoever they picked up next. With every new victim, the sexual assault and abuse was meant to get worse. He's saying things as if they were going to make him look like he's somewhat innocent. I'm here to tell you that all of that is still very bad. (laughs) Right? No matter your level of involvement, being involved in acts that horrible makes you guilty. Not that it can be believed. He enjoyed it just as much as his partner. Him even allowing those things to happen to these women is still enough to charge him. They both decided to pick up random women and torture them before taking their lives. Detectives learned most of the girls weren't actually random at all. Roy knew where Cindy was coming from that day when she left her church meeting. 
He also knew Shirley. She had rejected Roy when he asked her out on a date that year back in October. Roy and Lawrence were charged with five counts of first-degree murder. There was also concern for those Polaroids they found. Even though 60 girls were found to be okay and unharmed, 19 of those girls were still missing, and some of the unidentified victims were in the same positions as the young women we talked about today and were likely all victims of the two men. Roy agreed to take the police to the San Gabriel Mountains to search for all the bodies that were disposed of there. Despite an extensive search of the area, the bodies of Cindy and Andrea were never found. The skeletalized body of Jacqueline and Jackie were finally found on February 9, 1980, at the bottom of a canyon next to a dry riverbed scattered along a hundred feet. On March 18, 1980, Roy accepted a plea bargain to avoid the death penalty if he testified against Lawrence. He pled guilty to four counts of first-degree murder and one count of second-degree murder. During his sentencing on May 7th, Roy's probation officer told the court that he, quote, never exhibited any remorse or compassion about his brutal acts towards the victims. The defendant appears compulsive in his need to inflict pain and torture upon women. He can realistically be regarded as an extreme sociopath whose depraved pattern of behavior is beyond rehabilitation, end quote. On May 7, 1980, Roy was sentenced to 45 years to life with eligibility for parole in 2010. Roy eventually died of natural causes in 2020 at the age of 72. I just want to point out that men of color get the death penalty or life without parole for things as simple as drug charges. Yeah, and this white serial killer tortured and murdered young women and girls and was somehow eligible for parole? How? Make it make sense. This country really needs to do better on many aspects, especially the justice system. At the very least. A month prior to Roy's sentencing, Lawrence had an arraignment on April 24th, where he was charged with 29 charges of kidnapping, rape, sodomy, murder, and possession of a firearm. When the judge asked him what he pleaded, he remained silent, so the judge entered a not guilty plea on his behalf, and he went to trial. He was tried in Torrance before Judge Thomas Fredericks, with more than 100 people present in the courtroom. During his trial, witnesses came forward, including people who knew him and women he tried to sexually assault. Seventeen minutes of audio was played of him torturing Shirley before killing her. On February 5th, Lawrence testified on his own behalf, claiming he had no knowledge of the abductions and murders of these women, and claimed he paid Andrea to pose for the Polaroids and paid her $200 for sex. He said that Roy walked Andrea into the San Gabriel Mountains, and when he returned to the van, told Lawrence he had told her to find her own way home and left her. He went on to say Jacqueline accepted his offer of money for sex and posing for the camera, and he had last seen her and Jackie alone with Roy in the van. As for Shirley, he said she agreed to theatrically scream for the tape recorder, and Roy must have tortured her because that didn't happen when he was around. After three days of deliberation, the jury found Lawrence guilty of five counts of first-degree murder, one charge of conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, five charges of kidnapping, nine charges of rape, two charges of forcible oral copulation, one charge of sodomy, and three charges of unlawful possession of a firearm. Two days later, the jury sentenced him to death. 
While successfully selling all of his execution dates, Lawrence died on death row at the San Quentin prison on December 13th, 2019 at the age of 79. Well, Lawrence, good riddance. I hope your time in jail was a taste of the hell you put these girls through on their last days. Still better than he deserved. I don't know about you guys, but this case put another level of fear in me having a daughter of my own. I remember growing up and having older men whistling at me or pulling their cars over to give me a compliment. Yes, it made me super uncomfortable, but my young adolescent mind would have never thought about the potential danger I was in. There's nothing these victims could have done differently. The moment they were spotted by these two sadistic men, they were set to be a part of their master plan. All we can do is continue to educate young women around us and keep them staying vigilant. Every 73 seconds, an American is sexually assaulted, and every nine minutes, that victim is a child. But there is help. RAIN is America's largest anti-sexual violence organization. RAIN provides a safe and confidential 24-hour sexual assault hotline, as well as providing safety and prevention programs and information. If you or someone you know is a victim of sexual assault, contact RAIN at 800-656-HOPE. Again, that's 800-656-4673. Or you can find them at online.rain.org. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Alina. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for our question of the week. And you can also find us on TikTok. Sham, what's our conjure tip this week? Today, I want to talk about the four stages of manipulation. The first stage is flattery. This is when the person who manipulates puts on a facade of being kind, caring, and helpful. The second stage is isolation. This is when the person who manipulates may start to isolate you from your friends and family. They might try to convince you that your loved ones don't understand you or want to control you. And the third stage is devaluing and gaslighting. Someone who manipulates may try to make you feel guilty or confused. And the purpose of this stage is to make you doubt yourself, your instincts, and your decisions. The last stage is fear of violence. And this is when the person who manipulates may begin to threaten you. They may threaten to leave you, hurt you, or even hurt themselves as a way to keep you under their control with fear. Staying vigilant and remembering these signs can save your life or someone you may know. Remember, you don't owe anyone anything, even politeness. Just because someone is saying nice things to you doesn't mean you have to be polite if they make you uncomfortable. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time. time. Stay vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.